Jim Cressman Invictus Entertainment Group, and you're listening to Steiny on Promoter 101. Welcome back. It's a brand spanking new Promoter 101. Ain't that right, W. Luke Pierce? Dan, that is a fact, and I am very excited about this episode. This is the 225th episode of Promoter 101, and today we're going to have a sit-down with CTK Management CEO Danny Nazell discussing his work with Slipknot, Barry Gibb, Dolly Parton, Kenny G, Casey and the Sunshine Band, and so many more. It's going to be a great interview, Dan. Also, a story entitled, What I Did During My COVID Shutdown with Jay Goldberg Events, Ian Goldberg, right here on the Promoter 101 podcast, Luke. Jay and Ian, any relation? You know, I don't think that came up in our conversation, but I don't think they're really... Yes, yes, that's a father and son combo. It turns out I'm I'm being told by the control center. Yes, indeed, I, I had that wrong. Producers in my ear tell me, yes, this is father-son Jay Goldberg. We can accept that answer. Well, we've also got, in addition to the Goldberg father-son duo, we've got Dallas promoter rep Josh Smith talking about the Ten Commandments of Concerts Returning. This list has gone viral on social media. Make sure you check it out. Have you seen the list, Luke? Because it really is a very cool list. Hey, listen, number four, buy tickets. Don't ask for the guest list. I think we should just implement this all the time for everybody except, you know, of course, me. Here, fucking here. Well, it's the 225th running of the Promoter 101 podcast. Let's start the bell now. It's Adam Voith from Billions, and I'm on Promoter 101. The Promoter 101 podcast is back, and I'm glad you found us. And you can stay in touch with me and Luke by hitting us with your ideas, requests, topics, anything you want by emailing us at steiny at promoter101.net. That's steiny at promoter101.net. Of course, we are all over online, and we want you to come and join the conversation. We've been featuring a lot on Clubhouse recently, but of course, on all the types of social media. The show is at Promoter101 on Twitter. I'm at W. Luke Pierce. Dan is at The Jew. Over on Instagram, same thing. The show is at Steiny Promoter 101. Dan is going to be at Dan Presents, and I'm W. Luke Pierce. Come find us there. You can find us on Clubhouse every Tuesday night at 6.30 Pacific, 9.30 Eastern. Promoter 101 Storytellers Live. A new weekly interview series as Promoter 101 on Clubhouse. We've got iconic guests sharing their favorite industry tales. And we follow up with a Q&A question at the very end. And it's moderated by me, Luke. Coming up next week, April 6th, is Ted Cohen, legendary Warner Brothers record man and technology super fan. Ted Cohen on Clubhouse, April 6th. Also on Clubhouse on the second Saturday morning of every month, join us for the Promoter 101 Book Club. We're going to meet next Saturday, April 10th at 8.30 a.m. Pacific, 11.30 Eastern, with special guests Sean Striegel, Kara Finkelberg, and Larry Weintraub discussing the book, Where Did I Go Right? You're no one in Hollywood until someone wants you dead by the late, great 
Bernie Brillstein. Go check it out. Still plenty of time to pick up this book or listen to it as an audio book. And come join us next Saturday, April 10th, for our second Promoter 101 book club. Which screen do you think you'll be on during this Promoter 101 book club, Luke? I may even sit down at home and, and do this thing from the quiet windless office here in Nashville, Tennessee. I think you and Traeger will be putting somewhere. I doubt you'll be at home. I actually probably will have returned home at that hour already from the golf course, so it'll be fine. All right. John Blaffer, lawyer, promoter 101. News of the week. Plenty to talk about this week, Dan. We've got some major news rolling out here. Of course, a couple blockbuster Wall Street financial deals that everyone loves to hear about and I love to talk about. Universal's parent company, Vivendi, rolling up an IPO for Universal, the long-awaited liquidity moment for all of those people out there who have been watching this story unfold for the past three years as Vivendi figures out what exactly they're going to do with this major behemoth of a record label and publishing group that they own in Universal. And it seems like we will have an IPO very, very soon, Dan, which is very exciting, I imagine, for the owners and investors of Vivendi who bought this record group more than 10 years ago now uh, at a fraction of its value. They're set to make a pretty penny on that IPO. In the world of lineup announcements, big announcement coming today. We're recording this on Wednesday. Bonnaroo dropping their lineup. Everybody's headed back to the farm Labor Day weekend, Dan. What I'm most impressed about this is it seems like Bonnaroo and the friends at AC Entertainment are headed towards a nearly full capacity Bonnaroo in September. That is a very encouraging sign. And with names like Foo Fighters, Lizzo, Tyler the Creator, Jason Isbell, and more, it seems like the return to the farm will be triumphant on the artist side of things. We'll have to see how this plays out here, Dan. But very excited about the lineup and what they put together. Congrats to everybody over at AC. Folks at C3 pulling together to make this thing happen. Hopefully, we'll see you down at the farm Labor Day weekend. This is Mary Claire Borgeli from Live Nation, Promoter 101. Best podcast in the music industry. Dan, we're going to kick it off this week starting with... A list on a, well, really a post that went viral this week. A ton of shares from the music business community from Dallas-based promoter rep Josh Smith, who created a Ten Commandments of returning to concerts, filled with some awesome highlights, and you brought him on the podcast to talk about it. Here we go. Production manager Josh Smith from Dallas, Texas, decided coming out of COVID, he wanted to set the record straight. So he went viral by making a list of the rules. The rules of what concert goers should expect when they come back. Rule number one, no guest list. Rule number two, support the locals. Rule number three, wear a fucking mask. Rule number four, we are not babysitters. Rule number five, no free drinks. Rule number six, tip your bartenders. Rule seven, support the scene. Rule eight, be kind. Rule nine, go to the merch table. And rule 10, have fun. Josh Smith joins us right now. Welcome, Josh. This has been shared 1.3 thousand times at the time of our recording. The insanity of this going viral like this. What's your reaction? It is a really good indicator. I think that people are ready to get back. Not only are they ready to get back, I think they're ready to get back maybe a little bit differently than it looked like before. The enthusiasm has been 
unbelievable. And it's been, you know, not just fans, not just industry people. It's really been all across the board, not just shared from, from my original post, but copied and pasted and shared hundreds of times on, on other people's posts, musicians, some of the Neva crew. So yeah, I think it's a really good indicator and, you know, kind of part of the point to test the waters and see where everybody was at. And I think it's time. Yeah. So Dana Frank shared it and giving you full credit, of course, and obviously President Neva and a handful of other big industry people have shared it. I have been seeing people copying and pasting as well. So there's probably more than 1.3 thousand shares of this because of the people that are posting it as if they wrote the list. But just to be clear, you absolutely wrote this. You were the first. This was your master child. I absolutely did write that. I guess it was yesterday morning. I kind of got up and part of my morning routine is I usually write something and sometimes I publish it and sometimes I don't. And this one went live and then went crazy. And on top of the rules, you give a little paragraph explaining not just no guest list, but don't ask, not now, not ever. Everyone that in live music industry has been out of work for 13 months and they need your support now, now more than ever. Buy the damn ticket. And for all 10 rules, you you give a little explanation. So it's like, just don't do this. Just don't do this. You explain why. So what was the genesis deciding to write this whole, I guess, the Ten Commandments of the Return of Rock and Roll? The Ten Commandments of the Return of Rock and Roll, indeed. No, I mean, you know, I've done pretty much all of the roles from being the fan to being the talent buyer to being the stage manager to being the person at the merch booth. I've, I've done a lot over the last 11 years. And I think each role just kind of came from a certain role that I've played, whether it be in a local production or a festival or whatever it might be. Starting out with no guest list is obvious. And I think that one's probably the most shocking to some people. But, you know, everybody knows where we're at. And I think the ones of us that are fortunate enough to make it out of these past 13 months and come back into the game need to let's lay some ground rules coming out. We know it's going to be a little bit different and, you know, do it in a way that, you know, I wanted to kind of present it in a way that was fun. Of course, I don't think the intention was it necessarily for it to become the Ten Commandments of the Return of Rock and Roll, but if you know if that's what it becomes, great. Sitting in on the clubhouse chats and things recently, just kind of the vibe is that we've all got to come at this at a level head and sort of be on the same playing field. And I think it's a lot easier if we just make the expectation that as we go back into this, we're going to put masks on our face, whether or not we're vaccinated, whether or not we believe in it, whether or not that we've already had it, and eventually I think we'll move out of that. But to get started, I don't. You know, I don't really see a reason why we need to make that a, a an option. I think, you know, not only for the fans and for public health, but also for these artists that are taking a risk and getting back on the road maybe a little bit earlier. You know, we're dealing with some local bands and things right now that are just getting back in the mix of it. And I think the the greatest thing we can do for our artists is make sure that they are all welcome and feel safe when they come and play these first shows. Josh Smith, the Ten Commandments of Rock and Roll for shows coming back. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's Banjos to Beats, and you can see all of his witty thoughts and check out some great music, too. Is uh, he's, he's not just a crew member. He's, he's also plays a little bit. Do a little bit of all of it, for sure. Rules of rock and roll going back, going viral, right here on Promoter 101. Thanks, guys. Proud to say Josh is one of the Emporium teams over the years, and love having him as part of the team and what he did here. Great list. This is Marcia Vlasic, president of AGI Talent Agency on Promoter 101. Tweets of the week. Hey, Dan, it's the name of the show, Promoter 101. So it wouldn't be this show if we didn't talk about some of your tweets. It's not really been a quiet week here for you, Dan. You've been on social media pretty well for the, the past couple of weeks here. I think a little bit of noise and starting with this one. 
I'm starting a tribute band to both Rush and ZZ Top called YYZZ Top. <laughs> little joke for my Canadian friends. You got me as well too, Dan. I had to do two takes for that. Here's another one, Dan. You're mixing social media here with Overheard on Clubhouse. We hung with you two on tour. Question, you toured with them? No, we stayed at the same hotel and saw them getting coffee. Yeah, that, that's one way to spin it, Luke, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I've hung with a lot of people then, Dan. <laughs> I toured with Zeppelin, apparently, as I bumped into uh, those guys at Starbucks at the Nashville airport one morning, or at least one of them. So that's the same thing, right? Yeah, I toured once with the Hold Steady, meaning we were on a plane ride from St. Louis to Nashville once. It was great. It's amazing. We've toured with way more people than we have. Way more people, Dan. Uh, how about when an industry professional responds to a text, new phone, who dis? As if syncing your address book had not been a thing for a decade, that fucker does not find you important enough to save your info. I guess we're just not that tight. Yeah, this happened to me today. Fuck those people. New phone, who dis? Here's another one, Dan. You know it's just going to be good when someone from corporate tells you, feel free not to engage in best behavior. Not 100% sure what my best behavior even looks like at this point in life, but challenge accepted, Luke. Challenge accepted. That'll do it for Tweets of the Week. Make sure you keep up with Dan on Twitter. He is at the Jew. You know, Luke, I found that you're very active on Twitter as of late. W. Luke Pierce, by the way. Mostly shit posting and trolling people on golf tweets right now, Dan. Although, from time to time, I do weigh in on music business topics. Hey, this is David Britz from Works Entertainment, and you are listening to Promoter 101. Coming up on this featured interview of episode 225 of Promoter 101, Dan sits down with one of the legendary managers of working in our business right now. He's got CTK Management's Danny Nazelle. He presently manages Dolly Parton, Barry Gibb, Kenny G, but has worked with the likes of Slipknot and so many more. Danny's full of stories, a huge character, and a great guy. Here's that interview. We've got a long-term friend in as our feature guest this week, Danny Nozell, right here, manager extraordinaire on Promoter 101. It's about goddamn time. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much. Let's just jump right into this. Let's go. Early days, you getting into the music industry. I mean, something about a Rolling Stones show that got you inspired to join the industry. Can we start there? Absolutely. Let's start there. I'm from St. Paul, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Grew up there. I started off in the industry working for Arnie and Jerry with Jam Productions. I was a runner. That's how I started in that business. Working for Don Sullivan, Mark Miller, Buddy Sokolik, all the old production managers that were David Van Pufflin, actually, which is was in Minnesota. But I started off running, and that's how I got into the industry. Then after running, I kind of worked my way up into production assistant, production manager, promoter rep, and just kind of worked my way up like that. Also, why I was coming up, David Van Pufflin, who was the rep for Jam in Minnesota, the promoter rep, said, you know what, a guy would be really smart because we go out and what we do is for every show, 200 shows a year, we rent furniture for whatever artist is coming in for the dressing rooms. A guy would be smart if he owned the furniture. So I went out and I bought three sets of furniture. I bought couches, love seats, end tables, tables, lamps. I bought all that. And then he said, well, I get 10% for life. <laughs> That's what he told me. So no problem. Uh, that was the deal I cut. But nevertheless, I ended up going from three sets of furniture to about 30 sets of furniture. And I ended up doing hundreds of shows a year. 
And uh, that was a long time ago. So I can say it was a cash business and it was successful at the time. I grew the business and I supplied not just in Minnesota, but we would travel sometimes depending on if Jam had bought a tour, then we would travel and I would do the furniture and run. So I was doing, I was just multitasking and always had like a, you know, entrepreneurial type of mind. So if Willie Nelson and Dylan were out doing their baseball tour in the summer, Maybe they could have the same couch. Yeah, maybe they'd have the same couch in every city, so it actually feel like home to them. Yes, exactly. That's cool. I love that. So we traveled like that. We traveled on that tour. We traveled. I think we did a Motley Crue tour a long time ago, and I can't remember because it was so long. But uh, there was several tours that I loaded my furniture on the back of a truck, and we just followed the tour. And every night they had the same dressing room, so I'd load up six or seven other dressing rooms, and they'd have the same stuff every night. And it was a show cost. So I was just getting paid like that all the way along. But it was profitable doing 150 shows a year, charging $300 a set of furniture. You got to love it. I'm just having visions of you, Nigel James, Don Sullivan, hanging out all summer long. That just sounds like so much fun to me. Absolutely. You're bigger mind than just the production world, but... That's how you found your way into business with Slipknot, right? The first band you got exactly. deeper into management. Exactly, because what I was doing was managing another band called the Coup de Gras. And that band was uh, like on a sub-label of Sony. And it had the drum tech for the band was Chris Fain, who was the original long nose in Slipknot. He was one of the percussionists. And he was up and he's actually the one that called me from, uh, he's not in the band anymore, but he called me from L.A., and said, hey, I'm in a new band called Slipknot. We just got signed to Roadrunner Records. And, you know, we're looking for a manager. We don't have a manager yet. So I didn't think I had the experience to manage, but I said, hey, I'll be your tour manager, tour accountant, because I had that experience, you know, from doing all the stuff with Jam and learning the promoter side of the business. And so that was it. I came on as their tour manager, tour accountant, and I had no idea what I was getting into. (laughs) I'm noticing a theme here. Iowa band, Minnesota production guy, Jam in Chicago. There's a Midwest theme building here. I'm there feeling is, this. You know what? You're the first one to notice that. Absolutely. I, I always tell everyone, all roads lead to the Midwest and all roads lead to Mini. So they all, everything's got to go through Minneapolis, you know? So your time in, with Jam in the Midwest, and I think we all have our different beliefs of what Jam stood for. It's either carrying <laughs> Arnie's money or the Jewish yeah. American mafia, whatever it was at the time, right? But it's, uh, it's genius. Those guys did a lot of shows and they, they owned Chicago long before there was a Lull Blues or there was a House of Blues there. It was, that was Jam was Chicago town. And those guys, man, they, they did Minneapolis, they did Chicago, they did the, the surrounding areas. They were the Bill Graham of the Midwest, and they rocked it. They, they were, and for and their uh, theatrical division as well did really well. You know, Arnie uh, came in and invested in on nine to five. But also when I so I got into Slipknot, and then you know what? That gave me an education that money could never buy. You know what I mean? You got nine guys and two crew, and me as the tour manager, tour accountant, going out doing very small clubs. You know, we went from a very small amount to they're getting millions of dollars of festival. I was along for the ride. I started in 2007 when they were rehearsing in in Sid's basement in Iowa. And I ended up 
going till about 2002. And then I left for a little while. Then they brought me back in till 2004 and a European tour with Metallica and Ozfest. So I was just kind of in and out of the band, but I went straight for a good seven to eight years. And I saw them go from clubs to stadiums. And I, I knew there was something different. I knew that there was, you know, something that nobody else had. And I really watched the rise and I was able to educate myself by touring the world in every club, in every theater, in every arena in every stadium. You know what I mean? And that's what I, I learned how to do it. And I created different ways to tour that I still have the, these methodologies and they're very profitable. And I, I've also used them for a lot of my client base, you know, that I've turned their, you know, their touring around to being an extremely, you know, profitable venture when maybe before it was not. So Ramstein, not unlike Slipknot, figured out how to take a show that had theatrics to the next level. It was something Gore really never figured out how to scale, but was doing a lot back in the day. But taking that high production show, putting it to great music, and moving it into more of a theatrical event, which Slipknot is, whether you love yeah. the music or not, if you watch that show, that show is theatrics from top to it bottom. Is. It is. It's the creation of, of all, you know, the entire band, but also it's Sean Cran. Sean Cran is... is one of the creative forces behind that band, you know, one of the, you know, he and Corey Taylor are just very creative and come up, you know, with all that it's an art, you know what I mean? That's their art and they're very good at it. And I noticed that early on that that's just it. These guys are, you know, nine farm guys from Iowa. They're really passionate. They're really fucking crazy, but they're passionate and they're really, it's like a nine man metal orchestra. But I can tell you that touring the world, you know, the audiences and the different demo that they attract is just all walks of life. And, you know, it started off as a niche, but it just like caught on like fire. And next thing you know, we're going from clubs into arenas. And what was funny is I was able to see how a band blows up in every step of the way. And I learned that. And I soaked it in like a sponge and I never forgot. I watched everything going on. I watched ticket sales go up. I watched ticket prices, there are guarantees go up, merch flying out the door, the internet coming into play. You know what I mean? Them starting to uh, uh, blow up online. You know, I was taking all this in like a sponge. It was an education. And when you're touring with a band that, that, that tours from every, you know, club to into stadiums, you learn. Like I said, I have an education that money can't buy because I've toured the world with those guys and done it on the on the highest levels and had the biggest challenges. So you're college educated, but you got your street smarts coming up through the production guy route yeah. and learning that business. So when you started with them, you started as a tour manager, but quickly became the tour manager slash tour accountant. And that yeah. even led to the management of the band. How did yeah. that process evolve? And how do you go from being the guy that's responsible for advancing the date to the guy responsible for everything? Well, what, what happened was I, I went from tour manager to accountant, and I really kept that position, but I got hired by management, which was Steve Richards, who is not there anymore. And Steve Ross, who was the day-to-day -day manager, is now been with me for like the last 17 years. And he's uh, based out of L.A., but he was the day-to-day -day manager for Slipknot, and he and I stayed together. I ended up working for management, but what my, what my title was was they ended up having, you know, several other bands, seven or six or seven other artists that were signed all to major and independent deals. So I oversaw the global touring for the, you know, based on the education I just got and was able to make things profitable. I oversaw the 
global touring for the entire company. So that's kind of it. But you know what? When you are with somebody for eight years every single day, yes, I'm the guy in there with the band. I lived with them for eight years, right? And not just going on tour. I'm talking all the time uh, into the studio, you know, because as soon as we're off a tour, you know, we get a couple week break. And then next thing you know, you're into the studio doing the next album. So I I was into the studio with the band and uh, also into... The, the Houdini mansion <laughs> for the third album on uh, in LA there. So anyhow, I did three albums with the band. I like to believe with the recording, they're still in full makeup and costume. No, they're not. Absolutely not. I still believe for wrestling is real though. So, you know, that's just me. Right. A manager is a problem solver. That's right. what you got to do. You're there to fix whatever goes wrong. You're the concierge for the band. This expanded to other acts, but you got to tell me how you go from the crazy antics of Slipknot and wind up as Dolly Parton's manager because, man, I don't see them touring together in a festival like, hey, automatically the best package you could ever have, Dolly Parton and Slipknot. How do you make the jump from one extreme to the other? It's kind of funny because Dolly says, you know what, you've gone from darkness to light. And is that the biggest truth? <laughs> uh, anyhow, after Slipknot, then I did several other artists. I did Slipknot and a band called Mudbane at the same time. So I was tour managing, tour accounting both bands because somehow, and I can't remember the exact tour, but they had lost their tour managers. So we pulled them in, put them on our buses, and we just kept touring. And we did that all over the world. And so uh, we kept that going. And then I moved in and I did, uh, when I came off tour with Slipknot, I got a call and Seven Dust had, uh, was looking for new management, but I didn't go in as manager. I just went in as a TM because they were in the studio and they were getting ready to put another album out. So I went down, hopped in the studio with them, got them out, and they went out uh, opening for Creed. So it was 24-7 Dust. <laughs> and uh, we went and did that. And then after that, I did several other bands. I did a I had to do a stint for Motorhead. Uh, I was just doing all sorts of things. They needed somebody for about a month out. So I ended up going out and doing a month. Danny, every band you're mentioning could have played Hellfest. Dolly would not. (laughs) How how do we make that jump? You you lived in the darkness, as Dolly would say, right? in the darkness and then like i said darkness to light so i'm just trying to think of all the stuff oh then i got in and i did jägermeister was sponsoring several tours so i got in and i did bone thugs and harmony and i did little john and the east side boys i did eight ball mjg so i got in and did several tours with with the uh the rap and hip-hop artists so which was great i actually loved so you went from metal to gangster rap I did. That's weird too, but amazing. (laughs) I love the experience. That was great. And then I went from there into doing some consulting. Bone Thugs tours like a rock band. They're one of the few bands that plays of that genre like a rock band. They are on the road and they work. Is that something that you instilled in them? And did you teach them how to do it? No, not at all. They they were... um, they were with DOS Communication and Steve Lobel uh, was was their guy. I was running the tour, so touring with them. And I think we did a couple. We did we did uh, two legs uh, with them. It was a while ago, but because uh, they two are better than almost any other hip hop band they do. in very the club ballroom level. They do a yep. great job. They know how right. to do shows. Bone Thugs is very very hard workers. Little John, Eight Ball, they they work hard and they toured hard you know what i mean and it was a lot of shows in a row so it was a fun tour actually i, I had a blast 
And then I'm, I'm trying to think there's more. Prior to, I, I went out and did a little stint also with Kenny Loggins. But I also got into some tour consulting. So I got uh, brought on by some accountants and some management companies. Uh, I can't tell you which bands, but they put me in there because I have a way, uh, everything's bottom line. My father was a, was a hardcore litigation attorney, okay? And uh, so he taught me how to read a contract. And then on top of that, I, you know, he was also very good with the accounting and taught me accounting as well as, you know, the road accounting and when you learn the tour accounting. But I can tell you what, I know it very well. And not only that, when I go to my clients, I go to my clients six months in advance and say, here's the budget. If you if you stick to my budget, this is what the financial you know reward is if you stick to the budget. But if you go off and you add production and you add pyro and you add all this other shit, it's not going to be that profitable. But I can give someone a profit and not deviate because I'm not going to give it away what I do, but I have budgets that don't fluctuate. So if you don't screw with my budget, you're going to make the profit that I tell you are. And I have over two decades of proof that my system works and it's profitable. You just have to let me deal with the numbers. And I don't care who it is because everything is bottom line. You know what? You look at someone's, and I would go out on the road on an arena tour that's losing $200,000 a week and you tighten it up because they have their friends on tour, cut off. Pyro, cut off. You know what I mean? You know automatically what you have to cut. You have to go to production and, and personnel right away. When you cut pyro, when you cut, and I don't mean to cut down on the companies, but it's the truth. You know, everything's the bottom line. We're in a business. And and when you're on tour, you, you know, you, you're not trying to go out there and break even. You're trying to make a profit to, to feed families and food on the table. So anyhow, I created a way it works. And I went in and consulted several different artists and I went in and changed it. You know what I mean? I was able to cut because it's, it, to me, it's very easy. You know what? When you go in and you're a cleaner, you're, you're not well liked. People aren't going in looking at you like, oh, hey, you know, this guy's coming in because he's coming in to fire people and he's coming in to redo the budget and people are getting sent home. But within, you know, two weeks, you have that budget back on track because you have just taken where they're lo- losing and tightened everything up. Okay, and, and I promoted your show, so yes. I don't want people to think that you don't have real production on the road when you're saying you're cutting no, everything. No, we do. You've we do. got real production with many, many okay. semis. That Dolly show is a nice, healthy union what? bill at the it end is. of the night at the arena. Oh my God, so hey, to be clear, listen, you're not cutting I everything. Don't get me wrong. You're don't cutting the extras, wrong. but and, the and, fans and are getting a show. I just mean there's a level of production that works like – some of the bigger bands can do the pyro, can do all the staging, can do everything because they are getting a bigger guarantee and they can budget for that. But there's a lot of bands that take out more production than their than their budget allows them to do. So what I've found, like with Dolly, absolutely. We're not going out with low production. We have probably 85, 90 people on staff, 10 buses, 10 trucks, whatever, and planes and the whole nine yards. But it's a level of production that works in within our budget. And that's the big thing. You can have all those, all those extras, the pyro and everything else, but it still has to work within numbers. It still has to work within a budget. You can't just, you know, create a world and not of production and not be able to pay for it on the road. And that's why I'm saying that I look at everything. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a very calculated and very methodical planner. So I plan out. 
And if a band comes and says, hey, I want pyro, I want lighting, I want staging, I want this, then what we do is we make sure that that works into the, to, we, we give them enough of that so it works into their budget so they make a profit. That's all. Uh, does that, all right, that so make- let's summarize. We, we go from yep. Slipknot to Bone Thugs to Kenny Loggins. Clearly <laughs> an interesting arc we're taking so far. Y- your path is probably unlike anybody else in the industry. From the consulting, I ended up going out and getting hired very quickly on a tour. And it was myself, Mary Jo, Blaine, and Gary Krojniak. And we got hired to go in and clean a tour up, which I won't say which one, but it was a big metal tour. And we cleaned this tour up. And then after that, they said, hey, would you like to go out with Dolly Parton? But I had actually got offered a different position. So I said no. And then I kind of used the position as leverage. And I ended up with Dolly anyhow. And I went out and I did like maybe 20 shows. And she was playing arenas, but there was only, you know, it was 2004, but she was only selling probably 1,500 tickets in these arenas. And I'm like, what is wrong? You know, there's there's a problem. And that goes into how I met her. But uh, I went in there and I kind of was... Uh, uh, did these shows, assessed it, but then that was it. She decided to stop. And then about three months later, she called me up and asked me to manage her. And then I came in in 2005. We went out and did the same type of tour, but she was only doing 1,500, 3,000 tickets in, in major venues. But what I did when I came in, that's how I actually got into Dolly. 2005, she asked me to manage her. So when I came in, the first thing I did was I looked over her Polestar history, okay, to see where her tours were and also went back from 1967 through all the accounting and all the accounting and everything I could pull and all the history. And I was able to see that she really wasn't a headliner per se. She was opening a lot of shows back then. Uh, She was headlining on like private shows, fairs, festivals, casinos, you know, but soft ticket dates. She was traveling and package tours. So in the 60s and the 70s, it was it was Porter Wagner. Then when Dolly got her record deal and started selling a lot of records, she was opening up for the likes of Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, you know, Kenny Rogers. So uh, she was opening up for a lot of different artists like that, but she wasn't closing the show. She wasn't the headliner, okay? And then what happened is she did that and, you know, toured whatever, uh, 40 to 60 shows a year and, uh, you know, did that. Uh, and then in 1981, she stopped. And what she did was she took 10 years off to make movies, nine to five, Steel Magnolias, you know, the, the, the list goes on. And she did really, was re- very, very successful with making the movies there in the 80s. Then in the 90s, she went back, re-signed to RCA and uh, Slow Dancing with the Moon and had a platinum album. And then after that, she went into a bluegrass label, but it didn't do well. It really, it, uh, she wasn't really marketed and she didn't tour that much. And the bluegrass uh, wasn't really being received well and it wasn't really successful. So from t- 1991, uh, 92, after the, the big album went into the bluegrass era, she really kind of uh, was on high, you know, really semi-retired almost. Not really because she works every day and she works you know, works her ass off every single day. She still has all her Dollywood and Dolly Stampede and uh, Splash Country and all her side businesses. So really, when I came in, she didn't need me financially for anything. But what I did was able to take a look at her touring. And in 2006, I I went to her and I said, hey, I don't want to hire one specific promoter. 
I've done all the research. I pulled your Polestar history to see where you're touring by, where you've toured, and and so that I could be educated on where your consumer is and, and what markets you're, you've sold any type of tickets in. And then two, I did your sound scan so I could find out where your music buying consumer was. So when I put those two together, I put a top 50 markets and I called the labels overseas so I understood where globally Dolly, where her consumer is. And then what I did is when I got to Dolly in 2005, no website, no socials, no merchandise, no manager. Okay. So she hadn't had a manager in nearly 17 years. And the last manager she had was Sandy Gallon. So anyhow, uh, that's what I was coming into. And I thought in 2006, I said, let me do my own tour. I'm going to, I'm not going to put you in arenas, Dolly. I'm going to put you in three to 5,000 seat venues. And I'm going to put your tickets on sale six months in advance. And that way, if I see any market that's not performing the way that I want it to perform, then we'll geo-target that market and we will go at that market with press until we see a, a jump in ticket sales. And if I put the tickets on sale in two or three months before, uh, if there is a problem in a market, it doesn't give you as much time to fix that problem. Okay. So anyhow, I put the tickets on sale six months in advance, put 21 shows on sale. Boom. We sold every show out. First tour in the history of Dolly's career to sell out an entire tour headlining an evening with Dolly Parton, no opening act. Okay. And that was the number 10 tour out of country in 2006. And then in 2007, I started getting some, and mind you that, you know, the offers weren't huge back then. Okay. And in 2006, at the end of that tour, I was getting all these dates and I said, Hey, would you like to go overseas? And she said, well, you know what? I haven't done a, I haven't done a tour overseas and I had never headlined overseas. And she said, the last time I was there, you know, was a long time ago. And she said, they lost my passport. They flew me commercial and they put me in a camper. That's how I traveled. And she goes, I don't know if I ever want to see this kid. I said, I know a different way. And I said, I'm going to custom make you buses and I'm going to put you on a private jet. And she goes, private jet? What do you mean private jet? I'm not going to fly on a private jet. And so I, uh, uh, anyhow, uh, one thing led to another. And I talked her into at least trying it. You know what I mean? And because she had been on private jets before, but she had never paid for them. Okay. She didn't feel that it was necessary. And I did a couple, three commercial flights with her. And I was like, whoa, you know, there's people from the front of the plane to the back of the plane with cameras and video cameras. And I said, this is, and and we got mob going through the airport. And I said, my gosh, no. I said, you know what? I, I will do different budgets and I'll budget this in, you know, but she doesn't like to fly anyhow, whether it be commercial or private, she doesn't like to fly. But anyhow, I went and picked her up. I put her on the plane. We were landing and coming off that plane. And she turned to me and goes, you're real smart, aren't you? And I said, yep. And then that was it. I framed the tickets. And since 2006, we have never gone. <laughs> she has never gone back to, but she deserves that treatment. You know what I mean? She had no one when, when you, when she didn't have a manager looking after her, you know, she didn't have anybody that was, was looking to her logistics and the way she travels. And what I did to get her in to overseas, I said this, I said, let me at least look into it. Okay. And I said, I know a different way. I'll custom make you buses, put you on a private jet. And I said, that's how we'll do it. And she goes, okay, I'm not going to guarantee you anything. You know what I did? I hopped on a plane and I flew over. And of course I did. Do you know Mr. Neil Warnock? Okay. So Neil and I did Slipknot together. Okay. And I can tell you in, in the European market uh, and the global market, he was very instrumental because he was in the beginning, Neil was the agent and he helped build that. He did. No ifs, ands, or buts. Neil, in the beginning, helped, helped 
to build that. And he, you know, we toured hard in club because listen, going from clubs up to the uh, headlining Reading leads and all the major festivals. So anyhow, I called Neil and he wouldn't take my call. And I started getting pissed off at him. He would not take my call. And then, and, and finally I told his assistant Claire at the time, I said, Claire, Listen, tell him it's about Dolly Parton. And she goes, hold on. So he thought us, we were called about Slipknot or something. So he came in, he took the phone call, and that was it. I hopped on a plane, flew over there, met with him. And then we met with, uh, you know, all the, the chairman of Live Nation Europe, chairman of uh, AG Europe. We met with all the promoters, ended up splitting it up. And I said, let's put her in downscaled arenas. And they really didn't want to do it. They're like, hey, she can't. She doesn't even have the history of selling out theaters over here. Why would we put her in downscaled arenas? I said, wrong promoters and wrong agents. Okay. And I said, now we have the right, the right team. And at the time it was uh, Steve Homer. And at the time Steve was with Live Nation. Uh, uh, Neil brought him in and he was very instrumental in uh, helping us break Dolly in the European market. He was hands down. And those two people for the European market were uh, my go-to. And what we did, no one wanted to put her in arenas, but they did. And I, because of what I said, and also we backed the, uh, I did something very smart. We backed the ticket sales off six months in advance. And what else I did being from Minnesota, I'm watching Prince and Prince took an album and put it into the mail on Sunday in the UK. That paper sells about 800,000 units a week. Okay. And then Prince came out and when he put this best of album in the paper, mail on Sunday, they shrink wrap it to the paper. He put a CD in there it sold 1.2 million. So because it had Prince's CD in there, it sold another 400,000 units, uh, 400,000 papers. So I went to them, got them to pay me, I don't know, 400,000 pounds or something like that. I can't remember so long ago. But then what I did is I gave them a best, a best of album of Dolly, just of things that we owned, live, uh, half live and half other things that we owned. And I gave them this album, they put it on there, shrink wrapped it. And I put it out six months in advance to let them know that we're doing a tour. And lo and behold, Boom, 1.8 million units. So we didn't, we surpassed Prince and even went to 1.8 million. He did 1.2, we did 1.8. So I'm like, something happened here. And then Neil's like, let's put, then what we did is invited all the overseas press to Nashville and we opened up Dolly's little cabana and we laid out a country spread. Okay hot chicken and grits and ham, you know, hams and crackers and jams and all that country, you know, experience. And we laid this out for everyone, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, you know, everywhere, everyone that came over, we laid out this country spread for them, all these reporters. And I'll tell you what, it just, they went back and they just were loving the experience. We put tickets on sale and not only that, DP told me this, she said, hey, you know what? Nobody on my team, accountants and attorneys, are, are agreeing with your budgets or think, you know, they think you're going to lose me a lot of money. But I believe in you. And uh, she goes, but I tell you one thing. She goes, if you do lose me millions of dollars, you're fired. Are you sure you want to take this risk with me? I said, absolutely, I do. I said, I've done the research, the planning, and the strategy. And now I'm going to execute and follow through. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's exactly what I did. We put tickets on sale. And I also told Neil Warnock, I said, hey, Neil, you know one thing. If I get fired, so are you. So we better make this thing work. And so we put tickets on sale. And he called me at four in the morning. I'm like, oh, shit, things aren't good. And lo and behold, he said, Danny, we've sold every venue out. I'm like, oh, we put 14 shows on. I'm like, really? He said, yeah, we sold everything out. 
And I said, so 1,500 tickets? He goes, no, the entire arena. We hit the lotto. <laughs> and then I put oh, another, hmm. then, then I put another seven shows on in arenas and some, in some markets, double and triple nights, three nights in Norway. So uh, it's in arenas. So we sold out 21 arenas and I'm not kidding you at the time that the dollar was, uh, it was like 210 or 220 pounds per to $1. I mean, the tour gross. I, I mean, it was, I don't, I can't uh, uh, say exactly, but I can tell you tens of millions of dollars, the largest grossing tour in the history of her career at the time, because we'd blown away that, but it went massive. And not only that, the merch went massive because they hadn't had Dolly merch except for bootleg in, you know, 28 years. So merch went and evening with Dolly, we sold out European tour. And honestly, she's so humble. She didn't want it to put out because I did such a strict budget. Okay. And not only that, I went to Jorg, who owns Beat the Street, the largest bus company in Europe. Okay. Touring bus company. And I said, Jorg, I'm sending you over blueprints because I just built Dolly two buses in America. And what I'm going to do is take a private jet and I'm not going to put Dolly in hotels. She never steps foot in hotels. She stays on the buses and I'm going to send you these buses over. They were the first touring coaches to have bathtubs and showers in the European market, period. They were the first buses. And so we made these buses. And then like, uh, then after that, we heard that several different artists were using her buses, major artists, and uh, they call them the Dolly buses. But they're two buses. They have bathtubs and showers in them and they have like a condo in back. And anyhow, we have, I, by the way, I've filmed over 350 hours of footage that has never seen the light of day of the start of when we started in 2005 to present date. We have content that is flying all over the world, doing the productions. I have shows. I have live four nights in Australia. But anyhow, I ended up making these buses with Jorg. He said, Danny, I'll do it. It's two and a half million pounds a piece. And he does it off a handshake deal with me. He's a straight up man. He did it. Sure enough, I sent all Dolly stuff that she's got to have, okay? Because she's not going into hotels. Because listen, when you have a, a, a major artist and they're going into the hotel after the show at 12 midnight and they got to get up and leave the hotel at 8 a.m. And, and, and they happen to be female and they happen to be carrying 70 bags of stuff. Are you kidding me? You ne you're doing that every day on tour. You're never, you never have consistency because you're always in and out of someplace. So you never have stability. And what I did is I built a condo on wheels, both in the U.S. and in the European markets. And I put these things on, on a ship to Australia, which I'll tell you about in a second. And I'm the first one to do it, uh, to, to ship buses to Australia. But I did them. They were the first buses. Dolly loves them. Anyhow, what I did is candles, blankets, teas, coffees, creamers. I put into a couple of cases. I shipped them overseas. And then I have her, uh, uh, I meet the buses in Stockholm, Sweden at Stockholm Stadium. Both buses, we uh, unload all Dolly's, the comforts of home. So she has the smells, the tastes, the coffees. They're all loaded onto the bus. Uh, and then I take one bus and I send it off to Viborg, Denmark to wait for us. And then what happens is Dolly and I come in, which I have this on film. Dolly and I fly in, okay? Uh, bus comes right on the tarmac, okay? Picks us up and we come off the jet onto the bus, over to the venue. 
Then I have a protection canine and I have a detection canine. So the detection canine, which is a bomb sniffer, has already sniffed the venue 10 times. I've been doing it since 2007. So nothing's changed for us or the way that we do our security. Uh, that, that dog has already sniffed the venue seven times prior to Dolly even entering. Two is I have a, a protection canine, attack canine, that is on the bus. So while she's at the venue staying there, there's no, there's nobody coming near that bus. It's handler and 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 the dog. And we use the same dogs. We've been using them for years. Uh, Brian Siever, Dolly's uh, head of security. He has dogs, and uh, you know we we have them in uh, everywhere we go or anywhere we're touring. And we also use them just. You know, uh, we have dogs that come with us and travel with us anywhere we go just because we love the dogs. We love the protection and uh, they're just uh, really nice to have around. Anyhow, so we put her over at the venue. She does the show the next day. And then after the show, we go over to the we, we drive the bus back to the jet and fly to Viborg, Denmark, where I have the identical bus sitting on the tarmac waiting for us. She comes off. She comes off the jet, goes onto that bus over to the venue in Viborg. The bus that's in Stockholm that goes off to Oslo, Norway, and it waits for us. And anyhow, I leapfrog bagging buses just like you bands bet. leapfrogging. And no stages. one's done this ever before. I leapfrog the buses all over Europe. Two buses. Dolly never steps foot in a hotel ever. And then what I did is she said uh, 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 because we went from 2007 to 2008. I went back to Neil and I said, we want more, you know, we want it more lucrative and uh, less shows. He goes, well, we have to go into stadiums, mate. I said, then let's go into stadiums. So that's what we did. We sold out 10 stadiums and seven arenas. Okay. Uh, so we did 17 shows and we do, you know, whatever, three or four nights at the O2. We did man arena, but then we, we also covered the, the whole lot of Europe, Oslo stadium, Stockholm stadium, Malmo stadium, Dolly was selling these stadiums out. So we built that from not being able to sell a theater out into stadiums. Okay. Danny, and, the dynasty that you built with Dolly is amazing, but it doesn't really stop there. So I really want to take the last yeah, time that we have. No, it's amazing. And, and everyone knows that she's basically Mickey Mouse at this point globally, like recognizes a, a, a figure that you, you see everywhere. But the Bee Gees business has turned into such an amazing, incredible thing and with this new HBO documentary. And they're part of your wheelhouse now, too. And I definitely want to see if we can talk about what's going Absolutely. on with them, because 30 years later, they're the, one of the biggest stars in the world all over again. Absolutely. And you know what? I've been uh, uh, just consulting with Barry for uh, and Stephen and Dick for about, you know, maybe a year, year and a half. And then uh, as we got to the end of the last year, Barry had said, hey, instead of consulting, I want you to come on and manage me. And then uh, just recently he came on and said, hey, uh, I would love to uh, have, you know, uh, uh, we've met all the families have met. We'd love to have you represent the Bee Gees. So uh, I said, absolutely. It excited me because uh, we have a template that we're doing for Dolly. And uh, not only that, Barry is passionate like Dolly. Um, we're heavily into branding. But what we don't do is just align the brand with something they're not passionate about, you know? And so same with Barry. We're just excited. Barry has Greenfield's album, which went number one in several different countries. Great great success and he was so humble and taken back by all the success that's happened and now we're going to go into a volume two into a volume three 
And one, the album came out in January, but the documentary came out in December. And I think uh, the Bee Gees documentary uh, was so great and it's, it was very well received and it's still being, you know, being played all over the world. But that really recaptured interest into the Bee Gees and also Barry, because what most people don't know is how amazing he is considered like the biggest songwriter next to Paul McCartney in the world. Barry is. And if you look up, uh, Barry has several songs that most people don't even realize that Barry wrote, you know what I mean, for a lot of different people. Hence, Islands in the Stream. He wrote that for Dolly and Kenny, which is, you know, uh, uh, one of Dolly's biggest hits. So and Dolly actually went on uh, to the Greenfields album and did words with Barry and absolutely breathtaking. And anyhow, Barry is remotivated. And he is ready to rock. It's he's got several things that he's working on right now. Uh, the Bee Gees have uh, a new movie coming out on Paramount. Okay, so they got a biopic coming out on Paramount. Uh, Barry's working on a new book. We have Bee Gees books. We have, I mean, both the brands are aligning and they're just blowing up. So, how did you and Barry wind up coming together? How did that relationship happen? Uh, it, it happened through. I've known Barry's son Stephen for a long time. And he's been very instrumental. He's the one that brought me in. He's the one that, you know, thought that he's seeing everything that we're doing for the Dolly brand and, and how we keep reinventing and being cutting edge over the last 17 years. And he's like, hey, uh, you know, my dad doesn't have a manager. Let's. So he really just kind of opened the door a little bit and we just kind of started a little relationship and it just blossomed. And now he's, uh, you know, he's given me full trust and I'm ready to rock for him. I am rocking yeah. for him. Well, nobody was doing business this year with COVID. The Bee Gees exploded all over again and berries everywhere. It's amazing. You're certainly, you're certainly working it. I don't want to let you go without talking to you about both the biggest disco band in the world, Casey and the Sunshine Band, and <laughs> the most well-known horn player anywhere in the world and Seattle's own Kenny G. We're also clients. Can can you talk about those those clients and what, what's Absolutely. going on? Absolutely, also iconic names. Absolutely, do a little dance, make a little love, get down tonight. Casey's still going. He's writing like a mad. I think he's written just over the last year, probably 50, 60 songs. He's constantly writing, constantly in the studio. Loves to tour and is just continuing to tour. However, what we have on KC is. There's a company called Ambassador Theater Group, and they are the largest uh, theatrical promoter and producer in the world. And they're based out of London. Uh, they own theaters in, in, uh, on Broadway, et cetera. But anyhow, I, uh, we did nine to five with them overseas at the Savoy Hotel, and it was very successful. And I pitched them KC on his life story. So next thing you know, they bring in JF uh, from uh, Pretty Woman. He and KC hit it off. They started writing. So now we're to a position that we're, he's writing a book about his life story to uh uh, you know, the Studio 54, all that, Disco Air, all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, or I should say, based on his life story, might not be called that, but it is his life story, I think. And anyhow, in process that they've already got an outline written for it, but we want to do a book, a musical, and a movie. That's what we're looking to do. And he's working on it right now. Kenny G. Kenny G, I'll tell you what, there's so many things that people don't even know about Kenny G. Did you know that Kenny G is one of the original investors of Starbucks? No, but it makes sense. Seattle bully, okay. right? Hey, 
Makes a lot of sense. His uncle got him into it. He had to cut a big check and it turned into, you know, very, very uber successful because, you know, he still, I believe, you know, is a is a shareholder in that in that in some capacity. But Kenny G, original investor into Starbucks, you know, what's funny is he doesn't even drink coffee. (laughs) I remember in what the late 80s, early 90s, Michael Bolton, Kenny G amphitheater tour was like the biggest thing. It was like adult contemporary own the moment. And those two guys sharing a stage together was like as big as a new kid tour for our moms. It was insane. Oh, absolutely. We, hey, we have been, Kenny is a very smart man. He's a day trader. You know, he's the third best uh, pro golfer on the celebrity PGA. We got to get Snapple involved to have these trivia questions. It's amazing. Absolutely. Next. Yeah, it's all going to be on lids. Hey. Kenny G was one of the original investors in Nobu. And then I believe you want to follow around and then, yeah. And then, and then uh, they, they bought Kenny out and also he's a pilot. And so, and right now we just, we had him with Kanye and then we had him with the weekend and he's got branding deals that we're going. We got a book deal on the table. Listen, we're just making it. We're heavily into the branding for all our clients. Slipknot to Bone Thugs to Kenny Loggins to Dolly Parton to Kenny G to the Bee Gees to Casey and the Sunshine Band. The iconic names that you have been involved with don't seem to end. What's next, Danny? You know what? I believe this. You manifest your own success. So the stuff's not falling from the heavens. you got to make it happen. So you know what? I, I've just led and I'm led by my intuition and I just move forward and whatever comes in to the pathway, I assess it and, and move forward. But know this, I don't feel that I'm where I'm supposed to be in life yet. So I'm not satisfied. So I have a drive. You know what I mean? I'm, just, I'm driven to continue. You know, I, uh, uh, I'm 24 I'm seven and I'll always be that way. So, you know what? And if I die, I die an honorable death because I work my ass off for my clients. I do. I want them to be successful. I want them to be happy. Danny Nozell right here on Promoter 101, laying it down about how yeah. it happened from Slipknot to the Bee Gees. Let's Boom. do it. <laughs> Man, there's never a better moment than when Casey and the Sunshine's manager sits down with you and gives stories of the road the way that Danny did today. Thrilled to have him right here on Promoter 101. Fergie, Tour Design. I'm on Promoter 101. Well, hey, the quote of the week comes to us from Bernie Burlstein. Outcomes rarely turn on grand gestures or the art of the deal. But whether you've sent someone a thank you note, I think the lesson there is to send someone a thank you note, Luke? I think so. But great synergy as, did you know, the book club's pick of the month for April happens to be Bernie Burlstein's book. And there's still plenty of time to pick it up or listen to an audiobook next Saturday, April 10th. Check it out on Clubhouse. Hey, this is Bill Silva from Bill Silva Entertainment. You are listening to Promoter 101. Trying something new this week, Dan. We've got a little segment that we're going to call What I Did During the COVID Shutdown. And our inaugural guest is going to be Jay Goldberg Events, Ian Goldberg. Here we go. A first-time ever guest, Ian Goldberg, is joining us on the podcast. Welcome, my friend. Thank you very much for having me. 
dude, this is so long overdue. Let me apologize to you and our listeners that we have not made this happen sooner. This should have been a priority that we took care of much earlier in the podcast. So I'm thrilled that we're able to write this now and make this happen. How the fuck are you handling yourself, man? How's your world? You know, I'm doing pretty well. I can't complain. As we've talked about, I've been spending a decent amount of time down in Mexico where the weather has been really nice. So can't complain too much about that and waiting for all this craziness to be over with. Well, this segment is what Ian Goldberg did on his summer vacation, aka COVID year. Now, (laughs) let's start out talking about what's going on with, with your Mexican hang and then move into the amazing lineup, speaking of summer, that you guys just dropped on the world, your festival of summer camp, which is in fucking Insane a lineup you guys just dropped. Thank you. But let's start with let's let's start with your Mexican trip and, and what you did on your COVID vacation. Yeah, so it actually didn't start out so much as, as a vacation per se. I was actually set to go down to Argentina. I spend a, a decent amount of time down there because I have family and friends down in Buenos Aires. My wife was from there, so still have all of her family and everything. She passed away about 10 years ago from cancer, but I still go down and see all my family and friends down there and uh, was set to go down there on March 14th. And of course, everything went crazy March 14th of last year in 2020, right when everything was going crazy and they canceled all the flights and Argentina closed their border. And so I also have a scuba diving business in Cozumel that I started about five years ago. So I rerouted and headed down to Cozumel thinking that, you know, if everything was going to be in lockdown and quarantine, I would at least be able to be out and go scuba diving and everything. But That didn't end up working out that way because the island also locked down and went into quarantine and they actually put in a curfew and had everyone had to be indoors by 6 p.m. And the port captain closed all the ports, so no boats going out. And you literally weren't even allowed to be in the water. So even, you know, all the beaches were closed. Everything was closed. And so scuba diving was out. So it really was just staying indoors. You know, you could get outside along the beach and stuff, but couldn't be out on the beach. And so I was really just in quarantine for six weeks down there, pretty much doing the same thing as everyone else. But it was at least the sunsets were nice and the weather was nice and everything like that. (laughs) But then in April, when it looked like things were opening back up a little bit up here, I ended up coming back up to Chicago. That was when we first made the the decision to postpone summer camp the first time and move it to August of last year. And we ended up deciding to do the virtual summer camp and doing a 20-year a retrospective since last year was supposed to be our 20-year anniversary for summer camp. Made the move to do the online version of a, of a festival. <laughs> um, All right. So just for anyone that doesn't know summer camp, it's a festival in Illinois that's been going on for well, 20 years and features around mostly jam bands, a lot like Mo's is a big part of that. But some of the biggest jam bands in the world call it their home for the summer, or at least for that weekend. Just so nobody's confusing, he is yeah. a camp counselor. It's actually a festival where he's the camp director, I guess. Right. Yeah, we started very much jam band based. And, and as you mentioned, Mo has been our our partner band from the beginning, Humphreys McGee, as they started in Chicago, weren't a part at the beginning, but then very much became a part very early on and are now also one of our host bands. We also expanded out very early and got involved in now are, I would say, a much more eclectic than just jam band festival. We've had everyone from Jane's Addiction to the Zach Brown Band to Willie Nelson to Steve Miller Band to, of course, then the Electronic. We've had Skrillex, 
Ace Nectar to Diplo, everything. So it's not so jam band centric anymore as it was in, in the early days, but still has those jam band roots. Yeah, look at your lineup. You're pretty jam band centric. You, <laughs> you, you guys bring in some novelty for the other folks to round it out. But yeah, you, got, you guys have not forgotten your core. Not at all. Well, I think the world is ready to get back to some shows, health permitted. Man, I can't wait till we see a little bit of that festival action all over our feeds. Like everybody having a good time and dancing in fields. Can't wait. Anything you are particularly excited about this year for what would be the 20th running of the festival? Definitely excited to have Ween. That's an, a band that we've been going after. As a, a lot of Ween fans know, in the early days, they were particularly anti the jam band scene. We even have some quotes to that effect of being a, a, against it. In the early years, we tried and tried and tried and couldn't get them to even consider playing summer camp. But now they're finally on board and they're excited about it. Gene Ween actually came and played um, during their hiatus as a band and did a, a cool thing with Umphreys McGean that we called God Boner, where he actually played Ween songs with Umphreys and really had a great time with it. So that's probably the thing I'm most excited about, being a huge Ween fan myself. So anyone that knows you knows that you are second generation concert promoter. Your father, who is also a concert promoter, but still doing shows in Florida. Actually, he's doing shows currently in Florida. Was it Air Supply I saw him promoting? Yep, yep. He did just do Air Supply, the, the casino that he works with a lot down there. The Immokalee Casino just opened back up for socially distant shows, doing super small cap in their theater, just 100 seats. But they're footing the bill and, and buying bigger shows to, to do for their VIPs in the, in the small setup with just tables, socially distanced tabled shows there. And then, yeah, he's been doing it literally since I was born 50 years ago. I grew up in the industry. I grew up going to shows from, from the time I was born, basically. Let's talk about that. When you're second generation concert promoter and you come from a family that's so well respected in the business as your father is, puts a lot of pressure on you to live up to that bar of quality that, that Jay's known for. Is, was, that, was that hard to live up to? I don't know if I felt that it was necessarily hard to, to live up to. You know, he taught me a lot and I, I felt that I was given a lot of leeway to do the things that I was interested in and, and pursue. Summer camp's a great example of something that, you know, was was all my interests. And I was just kind of had an, an open door to to take it and run with it and build it from scratch. It was certainly an interesting way to, to grow up, just a, having a great role model and someone who helped me to learn how to, the right way to do business. Does he get involved with helping you book summer camp? No, he's never really been involved in the in the booking process of, of summer camp. Well, since you guys have broadened the booking, it seems like Air Supply would fit in well with like some <laughs> of the novelty acts that you guys have booked. I think that would actually be a really fun thing. I think people would appreciate that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that into consideration. Thank you. It's actually not a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Like that or Cool in the Gang, something like that. Right? It could totally work. You know, yeah. Van Halen took them out at one point on one of the bigger arena tours. And, you know, that realization that fans yeah. of music are fans of music and that hits are hits. So if you're a Van Halen fan and you're playing at an arena level, you're probably going to love some Cool in the Gang hits. Certainly, going back to your original question, you know, there's no doubt that the unique upbringing I had of, of growing up in the industry has has informed my eclectic taste in music. And, and I think why I'm so kind of rooted in the jam band world is because I, I always say 
the jam band fans have the biggest ears. You know, that's why I love what I love about summer camp is we can present so many different types of music because jam band fans just love music. And if it's good, they'll appreciate it and be into it, whether it is electronic or it is country or it is whatever it is. If it's good music, they're into it. They'll be accepting of it. They might not sit and listen to it all the time, but they'll at least accept it for what it is at a, at a live performance. And, and I think a lot of that comes from me growing up and going to all the different shows that, that my dad was presenting and, you know, being at Van Halen shows when I was 10 years old and, and that kind of stuff. And then all the different various shows. Yeah, as it seems like having a festival like yours, it could be really fun to play with the lineup. Obviously, you want to make sure that you live up to the bar that's been set and not do anything too wild that's going to upset anyone. But at the same time, booking for your core and then booking some things that are going to expand, you know, everybody's experience from the previous time. Yeah, it's fun. Definitely one of the cooler moments when we did do Steve Miller Band, and that was one of the the ones that we were definitely experimenting at that point. We hadn't done anything like that, and the bowl was just packed, and everybody knowing every word, and everyone just going crazy with it. And we did it as you know, kind of an earlier. I think he played from like five thirty to seven or something like that, and it was just amazing. And same thing with Zach Brown Band. You know, that was kind of an interesting one because. They actually approached us. That um, was when I was working with Don Sullivan. He was still involved at that time. And um, he had a great relationship with them. And they approached him and said, hey, you know, we're kind of interested in doing some of these types of festivals. And they were like, but if we do this, we want to do something cool. Do you have any ideas? And kind of went back to him with, well, what about doing a set of all covers? And we get some of the other jam band guys like Mo and Humphrey guys and other people to sit in. And they loved it. You ended up doing a set with, you know, playing Pink Floyd and, you know, and the weight and all different kinds of covers with all these jam band guys. And it was just incredible. And everyone loved it. And, it, you know, it, it worked great. And then and then did a set of all J- of Zach Brown and everyone stuck around and fucking loved that as well. It was great. It was really, really cool. You know, not six months later, he's they're sold out at Wrigley Field. You know, it was amazing. So it's not just playing the set. It's playing something special and creating and working with the artists to cultivate something special. That's a once in a lifetime moment that they're only going to get at your event exactly before i let you go can you tell me who the one act that you've never got to book on summer camp that you've always dreamed of i mean it would who's the unicorn i mean it would definitely be it, it would never happen but roger waters i mean i'm the hugest pink floyd fan and to have roger there would be the the coolest thing ever for me. Jane's Addiction was a, was a huge one for me because that was definitely a, a band that changed things for me coming out of high school and kind of got me out of my classic rock phase and turned me into, you know, forward thinking alternative rock and, and getting into that whole shift in things. But Roger would take me back to the Pink Floyd days and all of that. So that would be the one. I got to say, that would be pretty fucking awesome to see some Pink Floyd in that field. I think everybody would dig that. Well, yeah. I can't thank you enough for making time, Ian. Promoter 101 with the great Ian Goldberg and what he did on his COVID vacation. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. What kind of antics did you get into during COVID? Let us know by emailing us at Steiny at promoter101.net. And maybe, just maybe, your story can be on next month's Promoter 101. You never know. You never know. John Holiday, Promoter 101. All right, everybody. That's episode 225 of Promoter 101 in the bag. Thank you so much 
for tuning in. We always have so much fun doing this podcast, and we really appreciate you spending some time with us and listening. And thank you, of course, to our amazing guest this week from CTK Management, Mr. Danny Nazell, Josh Smith from Dallas in with his awesome Ten Commandments, and of course, Ian Goldberg. If you like what you heard tonight, make sure you stay in touch with us. Drop us a review. We're told that really helps by people that know podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Hit us with an email. It's steiny at promoter101.net. Catch up with us. Let us know what you think of this podcast. We'll be back next month on the Promoter 101 podcast with a very special guest. From Brilliant Corners, manager Jordan Carlin. He represents Death Cab, Postal Service, Soccer Mommies, real estate, new pornographers, Josh Ritter. It goes on for days. Great guy. He's actually on the manager guide from Polestar right now. So a great moment for him. We're going to have a story right here on Promoter 101, Luke. And, you know, we record this over Zoom, so I'm the only one that can see you besides Connor. And your hair right now kind of makes you look like a young Paul McCartney. Wow, Dan, my aunt actually said the same thing to me. I like it. And tomorrow morning I'm getting my hair cut. So. <laughs> It's not a bad thing. Millions of people find him very attractive. It's true. Although it's it's time for a haircut. It's been about four months for me. You're a good looking I, young Paul. I appreciate it. I actually have been doing the uh, haircuts myself at home and it's working out quite well. I've saved about $18 throughout the last year. Wow. 18 whole dollars, Dan. Good for you. Well, hey, I don't... it sounds like shows are starting to come back, which means the podcast is eventually going to phase back out in sunset again. But we're going to be back with you for at least a couple more episodes, one or two. And we got the clubhouse stuff going. So we've enjoyed being with you guys. We wish you something. What do we wish you? We're wishing that shows come back and play as soon as possible, Dan. So we can go whack away and you can miss us again. So cheers and call your mother. Call your mother. Oh, when Luke is more Jewish than me, it's scary for all of us. But well done. Because I talked to Peter Temkins today, Dan. Me too. I love Uncle yeah. Peter. He was on Clubhouse this morning. I listened to him. You know, it's funny. The insurance panels used to be the most boring thing at the conference. And now Peter is the biggest get you can get on any of the platforms or conferences. The insurance guys are rocking it right now. And Peter being the gold standard for insurance. So if you need help getting through all this weird COVID understanding, call Peter Temkins, have him help you buy some insurance from him and protect yourself for whatever your insurance needs happen to be. Actually do my life insurance for Peter. True story. Peter's great because all my personal lines as well, too. He does some of our business lines. He does a lot of my client stuff. He's the gold standard. Peter Peter Temkins, Hub International. Promoter 101 brought to you by Hub International. Might as well be. I mean, it's not, but we love him, so fuck it. Sponsored this week for the first time ever by, by Peter. What the hell? Promoter 101 saying goodbye, y'all. Call your mom. Cheers. David Simone from DSW Entertainment on Promoter 101. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-da